Hello everyone, I'm Charlotte. And I'm Dina. Welcome to The Grim Curriculum. First things first, thank you all so much for the response towards our three-part Om Shinrikyo series. As you all know, it was our first time covering a cult here, so we were both really excited to see all your reactions to something a little different. And we know there's quite a few other cults out there that you guys want us to cover, so worry not. It was our first, but it certainly will not be our last. Because who doesn't love a good cult? That being said, we are both beyond excited to bring you today's particularly gruesome episode. We are back to our killer ladies today, friends. However, today's story is anything but a simple one. You may know the name. You may even be familiar with the legend. Today, we are going to be telling the very true story of Delphine LaLaurie. Legend is definitely the correct word to use here. There are certainly many sides to this tale and multiple versions that have evolved over the years. What we do know is that stories of what was found in her home after a desperate victim set fire to her kitchen are that of absolute nightmares. Signs of torture, human experiments, and other nightmarish things were found in the home she shared with her children and her husband, Dr. LaLaurie. As always, we are here to share the details of what it is that earned Delphine LaLaurie a spot in grim history. To do this, we're going to be exploring the legend, the truth, and everything in between. This is one hell of a story, and we cannot wait to tell it. There's no doubt that much of this legend remains a mystery. This is a case where the retelling of the story has changed throughout the years to the point where she has earned this reputation of being a bloodthirsty devil woman. But who was she really? And how much of her story is just that, a legend? I really quickly just want to take a second to talk about some of our research sources for this episode. I went into this somewhat familiar with what it is that made her so infamous, but I didn't know much about her as a person. I very quickly saw that a lot of the information out there is not only inconsistent, but it's also just straight up not a fact. A lot of the things that we know about her are absolutely horrific, yes. But before we get started, I want everyone to understand that parts of this story are legend, while others are facts that may have been proven with legal documentation and historic archives. This means that a lot of time was spent verifying everything we're going to talk about. That doesn't mean we aren't going to talk about the stories that people have told of her over the years. We're just going to clarify how factual they are. One of the main research sources that we used today was Mad Madame LaLaurie, New Orleans' most famous murderess revealed by Victoria Cosner Love and Lorelai Shannon. It's a pretty decent historic crime book. They did a really great job verifying their sources and going into all of this with a very realistic approach of who she was. Um, I'll admit at times it's kind of hard to follow because they do bounce around a lot. But if you're interested in this story, I highly recommend checking out their book. There's also a lot of documentaries out there. But again, that one just happened to be the most factual source. So that's the main one that we use today. I mean, any notorious woman from New Orleans will automatically, like, grab my attention. So I'm really stoked to dive into the story of Delphine. I feel as though she and Elizabeth Bathory would have been kindred spirits. Oh, I completely agree with that. I love that. They have a very similar kind of um, upbringing and kind of lifestyle, too, which I thought was really interesting. That's someone we're going to have to cover in the future, too, for sure. Oh, absolutely we are. This is a really interesting story because a lot of people are familiar with the legends, and I think a lot of people may be familiar with her because of American Horror Story. Now, while I do love me some Kathy Bates, 
If that is the Delphine LaLaurie you are looking for, that is not who you will find here today, not by a long shot. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the legend, we'll be sharing the full story later in the episode, but the LaLaurie house is still considered to be one of the most haunted in America. Located in New Orleans, it is best known as the site of one of the most grisly discoveries in American history. People travel from around the world every day to visit the spot of her atrocities. For those of you who aren't familiar with the story, here is a quick breakdown. One evening, a fire broke out at the LaLaurie Mansion. The home was owned by Dr. LaLaurie and his incredibly beautiful socialite wife, Delphine. It is said that in that home, countless innocent people were being held as enslaved men, women, and children, and they were tortured beyond belief. The true horrors were only discovered when one of the victims, a cook who was chained to a stove, was so desperate to end her suffering that she set the house on fire, killing herself and engulfing the home in flames. When the fire brigade showed up, they went into the attic where they saw her victims. Many were long dead, while others suffered wounds so grotesque that they no longer looked human. Some were saved, while others died as soon as they were moved. The public, upon discovering what had happened in their home, formed an angry mob. They chased her into hiding, and what happened to her afterwards still remains a mystery. So, right off the bat, that's a lot. We do need to warn you all that this story is going to cover some incredibly sensitive topics. As always, we're going to strive to cover this case as respectfully towards the victims as possible while still separating legends from facts. Not a lot is known about the childhood of Delphine. In fact, we don't even know what she really looked like. Yes, there are some paintings that exist of her, but no actual photographs were taken of the volatile socialite. Unfortunately, the only thing that we do know for a fact about her is the reports consistently describe her as beautiful. Seriously, that is essentially the only thing that can be agreed upon when it comes to her. Historians can't even agree on whether she was tall or short. That's how little we know about her. In fact, only two paintings exist of her that people can agree are even possibly accurate. Much of her entire life from start to finish is debatable. Few records still exist due to record keeping in New Orleans still being in its infancy during this time. In fact, police records didn't even exist until the year that the fire was set. And you all know by now, sometimes the story changes over time. It's as simple as that. That being said, we do know that she was born Marie Delphine McCarty in New Orleans around 1775 to a very wealthy family. Her life from the start was one of opulence and privilege. Some sources state that her birth date was March 19, 1787. However, no birth records exist to confirm this. Her father, Louise Bartholomew de McCarty, came from Ireland around 1713 with his wife, Marie Jean Lerab. This was Marie-Jean's second marriage, and along with Delphine, they also had two sons, Bartholomew Louis and Jean-Baptiste Francois. The family settled on an extravagant plantation. I honestly feel like anytime you have a plantation involved, you're going to see a lot of evil done to completely innocent people. Mm -hmm. I wonder what kind of things she witnessed as a child and was taught were completely normal and how that would influence her later in life. Because she was more than likely taught things that we now consider absolutely deplorable were completely normal. Delphine spent her childhood mostly focused on her education. 
She was taught to read and write as well as her basic subjects, but the majority of her education was in etiquette and learning how to run a house. Her family had multiple enslaved people living there, which was sadly common at the time. There aren't any records of her during this time displaying any kind of cruelty towards others or red flags of any sort. But that doesn't mean that there weren't any. Chances are there was a huge amount of abuse towards people in the house from at least one of her parents, if not both. They were also the kind of people who held their own reputation in high regard. So if there were any kind of issues within the family or with Delphine, they would have been swept under the rug rather than admitting that anything inappropriate was happening in their home. During that time, when a young girl hit the age of about 16 to 17, it was time for her to marry and start her own family. Delphine did not get married until she was 24. This was pretty unheard of. Unfortunately, we don't exactly know why it took her so long to marry, but there are a few theories. One simply being that records are wrong and maybe she was younger than we think, but more likely is the fact that her parents thought very highly of their daughter and were excessively picky about who she would marry. Despite the fact that it took her almost 10 years longer than the average woman around that time to get married, she still managed to tally up a total of three husbands throughout her life. It looks like her love life really took off in early 1800. That year, Don Ramon Lopez de Angulo became the new intendant of the state of Louisiana. That meant that he was sent by the king to supervise the area and keep watch over the development of it and its economy, as well as deal with any issues that arose with crime. We aren't quite sure how the two met, but we do know that her aunt was married to Governor Milo, who most likely introduced the two. On paper, it seemed as if the esteemed Don Ramon would be the perfect husband for a young woman such as Delphine. In regards to his personality, we don't know a ton about him. Some writings of his still exist, and they paint a picture of a relatively prim and proper, albeit frugal, man. We also know that he wrote to have the slave trade open back up in the area in order to save himself more money by not having to pay his workers. His request was denied. This is husband number one out of three for the record, and we're going to see pretty quickly that she wasn't marrying the best kind of men, but based on what we know about her now, perhaps she was finding herself like-minded partners. We also don't know much about the actual state of their marriage. We do know that during this time, she continued to enjoy the luxuries that came with a higher class lifestyle. In regards to what he saw in Delphine, it was most likely that he was taken by her beauty or possibly just her money, but it's also possible that the two actually did fall in love. Not everyone was happy about the marriage. Don Ramon was a knight pensioner of the royal and distinguished court of Charles III. Unfortunately for them, any marriages by men in his position had to be approved by the king himself. For some reason, the king was not notified about this marriage, which was considered a huge offense. Why was he not informed? It's most likely that many during that time just didn't think it was necessary. In fact, Delphine's aunt, who married Governor Milo, did exactly the same thing. They face no consequences. This was not the case for Don Ramon. He was stripped of his title and was ordered to return to the Spanish court, where he was promptly exiled onto the northern coast of Spain. This entire part of the story is pretty confusing. We aren't quite sure why he got in trouble when Governor Milo didn't. It was becoming pretty common for marriages to happen without the king's blessing, especially because they were all the way in America. Most people didn't get in trouble. Don Ramon got straight up exiled. 
Uh, it makes you wonder if the king had his number for some other reason and was just waiting for an excuse to exact some kind of punishment. In 1801, just a year after they met and married, Don Ramon was forced to surrender his office. His successor did file various complaints against him, although the exact details of these complaints are unknown. We do know that he attempted to dispute these claims and was unsuccessful. So I honestly, I think you might be right. I think maybe he wasn't very well liked. Must be. Pissed off the wrong person for the wrong reason and everyone just had it out to get him. Don Ramon eventually found himself pardoned and was granted another government position. He died of heart failure on his way back to the United States. Delphine's actions during this time are up for debate, but there are two versions that are most often believed. He wasn't exiled for all that long, and sometime before he left for Spain, she became pregnant. It is not known if he knew about this. One version of the story says that Delphine was pregnant when he was exiled, and that she gave birth on the same trip back to the States that he passed away on. Another version is that Delphine went to Spain with the intention of helping him. She sought out help from the Queen of Spain herself. Author Elizabeth King paints a very interesting portrait of this meeting. She wrote, Delphine was a woman of such great beauty that when she went to Spain to solicit the protection of the Queen of Spain for her husband, who had incurred a military punishment, she did no more than kneel in a garden where the Queen took her morning walk. Her long black hair was unbound and hanging about her shoulders, her lovely eyes raised in supplication. The queen stopped at the sight of her, so young and so beautiful, and approached her with the words, Your petition, whatever it is, is granted. You are so beautiful. The queen, so charmed by her beauty, gave her what she wanted and offered to send her husband back home with her. Delphine left back for the United States only to find out that Don Ramon had perished on his way home. Shortly after, she gave birth to her first daughter, Marie-Francois de Boya de Lopez y Angulo, commonly referred to by her nickname, Borquita. This is the first of her children, and I almost feel like I have to give you all a heads up. Their names are quite similar and are often (laughs) spelled differently. And the versions of the names we are using in this episode are from Mad Madame Lalaurie due to the fact that they had the best fact verification process out of most of the sources we could find. Not much is known about her life shortly after Don Ramon's death, but the next records of her pop up in 1808 at about the age of 32 with an eight-year-old daughter. It was around this time when she met Jean-Pierre Paulin Blanc, an important figure amongst the New Orleans political scene. Together, the two lived in a two-story mansion in town with lavish furnishings and 24-foot-tall ceilings. They spent some of their free time on their equally beautiful home in the country that they referred to as Ville Blanc. Something important to note here is that records exist of their first house. Ville Blanc has only been talked about in stories and its very existence is up for debate. That being said, the main thing to take away from this marriage is that he was incredibly prominent and together they were very rich. Between 1810 to 1816, the couple had four children, Marie-Louise Jean, Louise Marie-Laure, Marie-Louise Paulin, and Jean-Pierre Paulin. Her first daughter, Marie, stayed with them at this house until she married into the well-known Forstall family. Jean Blanc seems like he was involved in some pretty wild stuff. On the surface, the family seemed to live a very proper and happy life. 
What was going on behind closed doors was likely another case altogether. People knew that he had earned most of his money working as a banker, a politician, merchant, whatever he needed. Whispers told of another source of income. It is highly believed that he not only had a part to play ensuring certain goods could be brought into the country without paying customs, but he was well known amongst pirates. I bet you didn't think we talk about pirates in this story, hey? <laughs> Again, this is partially legend. However, there are letters that exist to him from Jean Lafitte, a pirate who had earned the nickname Terror of the Gulf. Jean, along with his brother Pierre, are best known for their actions aboard their stolen ship, the Dorada, which they used to take over and steal other ships and their valuable contents. In these letters, Lafitte wrote to him in an attempt to secure help from the American army in the Battle of New Orleans. As for Jean Blanc himself, his name does appear more than 350 times in the documentation of buying and selling enslaved people. While there is little definite proof of him owning boats that were used in privateering, it isn't too unlikely. So, essentially, he was not exactly a good man. He engaged in various illegal activities and didn't seem to care too much about what he was doing unless it made him money. Essentially, yeah. He comes up again in 1806 when court documents show evidence that he purchased 27,000 pounds of stolen coffee. That's a lot of coffee. <laughs> 27,000 pounds. And dear listeners, if you think he faced any consequences for this, then you could not be more wrong. That's right, because instead, he became heavily involved in politics and was pretty well known in the New Orleans scene. It's unclear how Delphine felt about all of this. His activities did allow her to live a very lavish lifestyle, and based on the evidence we have, it doesn't seem like she was complaining much. It reminds me of The Sopranos or something, where it's like, sweetie, we live in a big, beautiful house, you have beautiful children, do not question how we live this lifestyle. But with pirates. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I would watch the shit out of that show. Oh, I would too. I think it'd be great. <laughs> we don't know what became of Jean Blanc. Records show that he either died or vanished in 1818, leaving her with their four children. The oldest at this point had long since married. There isn't really anything out there that shows the actual date of his death, which is why it's debatable. He seemed to have left her with enough to live a very comfortable life, though. In 1819, Delphine comes up in records again. Unfortunately, this leaves us with more questions than answers. What we do know is that she presented an emancipation petition to the court declaring that she wanted an enslaved man named Jean-Louis freed. In this documentation, she said that he was a good and honest man. She also specified that she didn't think he would pose a risk to the public and that he had never committed crimes against her or anyone else. I found this interesting and I wanted to include it because it, it's nothing like what we're going to see from her later. Like, regardless of how much of the actual legend you believe, even after listening to this, I'm sure you can all agree that she was still a cruel woman. Mm -hmm. This left me wondering if something changed or if there was something different about him in particular, because this is one of the few good things we hear about her doing. So it really just leaves us with a lot of questions. Her activities between then and 1828 when she meets her third husband are a mystery. What we can assume is that she spent her time with her children and that they all enjoyed the luxury that New Orleans life had to offer. 
And that brings us to Delphine meeting Leonard Louis Nicholas Lalaurie, MD. His date of birth has been guessed to be anywhere between 1771 to 1800, which is a huge span. So we really have no idea of his true age. What we do know is that he was quite a bit younger than Delphine, and she did not seem to mind. We actually have no clue what he even looked like. There remain no portraits of him, and if they did even exist, they were destroyed a long, long time ago. He studied dentistry in Toulouse, where he performed with absolute mediocrity. When he <laughs> finished school, he set out to Louisiana. During his long voyage to America on the great ship Fanny, he kept a series of weather journals. And Mad Madame Lalaurie describes them as a quote-unquote painful read even for the most avid of history fans. So I think that tells you enough about him. Yeah, I mean, in regards to his personality, it doesn't seem like he was overly exciting. Letters that he wrote to his sisters just show a loving brother who didn't present with any red flags. To me, on the other hand, I hear 1800s dentist and I just have this picture in my mind of an absolute, like, butcher. I Yeah, mad scientist, <laughs> kind of. Or, like, you know, I, I picture someone with, like, a bloody leather apron. And yes, like, like A big saw or, like, a massive pair of pliers or something. That is exactly what I, like, I could not have said it better. That is exactly <laughs> what I picture. But apparently when he arrived, he was really well received due to the fact that he was actually educated and he stood out from what they called the quacks that they had performing dentistry in the area. Oh boy. He set up his own practice less than a month after arriving and it seemed to do very well almost immediately. This led Delphine to meeting him likely while taking one of her children in to see him or possibly even as a patient herself. It's unclear how quickly their relationship progressed, but we do know that in September of 1827, she wrote to him asking for a personal favor regarding her daughter who was ill. And while this might not seem like much, three months later they were married and Delphine became the woman we know her as now, Delphine Lalaurie. The two eventually had a child, a boy they named Jean-Louise. Say what you will about baby names these days, but at least they're usually different names between siblings, and they're all fairly unique, if stupid. But these are all just combinations of the same names. Can you imagine them, like, trying to call one of their kids down from, like, the other room or something? I have a completely different name to my sibling, and my mom still goes through everybody else in the family before she manages to get to me. I can't imagine, like, screaming, like, Jean-Louise! And four other children also show up. I think this is why, like, um, you know how we look back on names and it's like, your name was Jean-Louise. Why did they call you Billy? And it's like, because they had to <laughs> differentiate between your other siblings, Jean-Louise and Louis-Jean. Like, I mess up my pets' names and they're different species. I can't even imagine, like, five uh, children with almost the same name. Honestly... In 1832, they purchased their mansion at 1140 Rue Royale, a house that would live on in infamy along with them. This place was beautiful. It had been built the year before, and they had filled it with fine art, stunning furniture, and basically just anything that would show a high level of class and luxury. The house also had a gorgeous interior courtyard with several balconies that looked over it. This courtyard would play a prominent role in later legends. 
The Lalleries became popular very quickly due to the parties that they threw on a regular basis. The events were so looked forward to that they were the subject of conversation amongst everybody. People who weren't considered high class enough to attend saw them as almost what we would now consider celebrities. So much so that they would read about these parties in the local papers. A huge topic of these articles was Delphine herself. They often wrote about her beauty and her taste in fashion. People didn't really talk about Dr. Lalaurie. It seems as if he was often overshadowed by his gorgeous and charismatic wife. And it's interesting to note that he plays a very different role in this story depending on where you hear it. The lengths at which he was involved are a bit of a mystery, but he's often seen more as what you and I would probably consider an NPC-style character. Oh, <laughs> poor guy, right? I mean, honestly, like with I just picture like this guy with his weather journals and they're boring. I like... almost picture, you know, like the Red Queen from Alice in Wonderland and how like the king is just like very small in comparison to her. Like it's that kind of uh, dynamic that I'm picturing where she's like beautiful and lavish and fashionable and charismatic and he just like trots along behind her going yes dear whatever you like dear absolutely because I, I wonder what she saw in him I don't know because I, I I'm not sure if sure if this is the case but it seems like she definitely had the power in this situation which is maybe what she did want in him was just a little husband to boss around I'm not sure or maybe they had a very different dynamic behind closed doors it's kind of hard to say it really is I mean NPC style husband is a is a whole other vibe I guess for sure I mean sometimes in the stories he just isn't mentioned at all and everyone we need to point out two things for sure so First of all, it really seems like once they move into this particular house that things really start to get vile, or at least that's what we start to see through court documents. Second, this is where the story starts to go in a lot of different directions. We're going to be talking about the better known version of things that some of you may be familiar with, but we're also going to be going over the story that we can piece together with actual evidence. I mean, the story itself is such a talked about legend for a reason. If you aren't familiar with it, you're going to be horrified. There's no doubt there. However, like we mentioned before, we have the legend and then we have the actual story. On October 26, 1832, court documents show that they petitioned to have another enslaved person freed. That day, Delphine filed another petition to order the separation of her and Dr. Lalaurie. She swore under oath that he beat her viciously and that because of that, she wanted the court's permission for what they then called suing for a separation of bed and board. And again, this is another instance where the actual evidence leaves us with more questions. They were absolutely abusing people. Why did they free this particular person? Also, why did she file to separate on the same date? Delphine had a reputation as a woman who constantly strived for perfection. Her public image was incredibly important to her. It's likely that this separation would have led to negative gossip amongst the rest of high-class New Orleans society. So whatever it was that caused her to want to leave him must have been really, really bad. All of this brings us to the part of Delphine's story that many of you might be familiar with. Unfortunately, this is also where things get really complicated. Like we mentioned before, multiple versions of events exist. 
first, we're going to tell you all the legend, or at least the most agreed upon version of it. Then we're going to look at everything with the facts that we have and explore the different conclusions that historians and writers have come up with over the years. Most versions of this story begin with a young girl around the age of nine. She's usually referred to as Nina or sometimes Leah. One day, she was brushing Delphine's hair. While she was doing this, she accidentally pulled her hair a little too hard, which sent Delphine into a blind rage. Delphine began to chase after her to inflict what we can only imagine was an incredibly brutal punishment. Rather than face her, the poor child threw herself out of the high-up kitchen window. Tragically, she died upon impact. Other enslaved people that were present watched silently. Once Delphine left, it is said that they quietly wept as they buried her in the courtyard. <sighs> Honestly, even if we just stopped there, something like this would make her an incredibly vile human being. The fact that another person, let alone a small child, was so scared of her that she chose death is just sickening. I, I think we see very early on in the story why she has the reputation that she does. I can't imagine being so afraid of someone that I would rather throw myself from a window than deal with the punishment that was coming. Like, that is so awful. It's honestly, and like I said, like, that's just the start. Oh, yeah. Oh, very Ugh. much so. The young girl's grandmother, often referred to as Rachel, was forced to work in the kitchen. It said that every time the door swung open, she had a clear view of the spot where they buried the poor little girl. This must have been beyond heartbreaking for her. Honestly, truly evil. Like, this poor woman. This, it only gets worse from here, folks. In some versions of the story, the court charges her for the death and she's ordered to pay a fine and forfeit a number of the enslaved people at 1140 Rue Royale. Not much of a punishment, if you ask me. Nope, and she uses her family's connections to just buy them back. That's fucking sickening. Rachel's heartbreak turns into hate. She begins to refuse to cook for the family, which causes her to receive terrible punishments. But she does not give in. Instead, she vows to get revenge. They had this poor woman shackled to the oven. It wasn't like she could just walk away and refuse. She was made to stay there, and that means that she was also forced to see that spot again and again. Desperate to end her suffering, she began to stoke a small fire in the oven. It continued to grow until smoke and flames enveloped the room. She died chained to the oven, cursing the Lalaurie name. That's a lot. Yeah, that's pretty heavy and honestly just heartbreaking. Neighbors who saw the smoke very quickly ran to help in whatever way they could. They got into the house where they saw Delphine and Dr. Lalaurie scrambling to gather their valuables. The people yelled at them to get out because the house is on fire, but they refused. They had too much to lose. And for the record, they were talking about paintings and stuff, not the literal human beings they had in their home. Uh, neighbors took note of this and found it pretty fucked up. They continued to search the home for survivors. Firefighters, along with Good Samaritans, put out the fire as quickly as they could, but there was already a fair bit of damage done. When they could, they made their way through the home and found a door in the attic with a large lock on it. Just a quick content warning for the next part, because what they discovered beyond that attic door was incomprehensibly gruesome. 
So they demand the key from Delphine, who just kind of shrugged and says, I don't know where I left it. Apparently, she was pretty nonchalant about this. They broke the door, and what is found is best described in the 1946 book Ghost Stories of New Orleans by Jean de Levine. She wrote about their response from a firefighter, saying, The man who smashed the garret door saw powerful male slaves, stark naked, chained to the wall, their eyes gouged out, their fingernails pulled off by the roots. The others had their joints skinned and festering, great holes in their buttocks where the flesh had been sliced away, their ears hanging by shreds, their lips sewed together, their tongues drawn and sewed to their chins, severed hands sticked to bellies, legs pulled joint from joint. Female slaves there were, their mouths and ears crammed with ashes and chicken offal and bound tightly. Others had been smeared with honey and were a mass of black ants. Intestines were pulled out and knotted around naked waists. There were holes in skulls where a rough stick had been inserted to stir the brains. Some of the creatures were dead, some were unconscious, and a few were still breathing, suffering agonies beyond any power to describe. Hearing you say all of that made me literally cringe. Well, saying it did too. That's like fucking a house of a thousand corpses. Like, how do you even, how does a human being do that to somebody else? Like, I can't with this. Like, if you had trouble with all of that, like, I challenge you, play it back and like, listen to each word Charlotte just said. The first time I read it, in my mind, I was like, oh, this is some human centipede level, like, shit. And then it just went on and on. Yeah. And I was like, oh, oh, the human centipede ain't got nothing on this crazy bitch. Like, Seriously, what? Seriously, like, it is unimaginable. Oh, God. There were plenty of other reports, one of which was what is now horrifyingly referred to as the crab woman. The crab woman was found with her limbs broken and reset into unnatural angles to resemble a crab. There was also the caterpillar woman. They say that she had been tortured beyond belief. Her arms had been amputated and her skin was cut in a way that resembled scales. Amongst them were other victims, both dead and alive. Many had a multitude of wounds that they had suffered over an extended period of time. Some had been starved and beaten, while others were laying on the floor in their final moments, clutching whatever it was that was spilling from their wounds. In some cases, their own intestines. There's a whole lot more. So you can see already, obviously, why this became such a famous story, because the brutality of all of this, regardless of when you look at it, is unbelievable. This is honestly sheer torture and what looks to me like some form of sick human experimentation. There were buckets of body parts everywhere and the smell of death, infection, and God knows what else filled the room. Many people on the scene were sick the second they walked into that attic and kid you blame them. Oh my god. Oh. I, I, I've said this way too many times over the course of this podcast so far is like I always picture the smell of things. And that's that was one thing that came to mind for me as well, because how are they having these lavish parties and no one is smelling this? Because I think I mentioned it a couple episodes back, but um, 
I I saw a video about um, crime crime scene cleanup, and they said that when a decompose decomposing a decomposing body is in a home and it's been left to decompose for a little while, you can smell it down the street. Oh yeah, and I, and I it, know it, it liquefies is, too. It goes oh, through floors. Yeah. And I know this is New Orleans in like the late 17, early 1800s, so it was probably pretty stinky in general. But I feel like you would smell this. Well, think about how hot it was. Oh, that too, and um, very humid with it being by the sea. Yeah, just bad times. Nasty, bad nastiness. Times. Yeah, there were bodies everywhere. A man with a hole drilled in his head lay barely alive, while maggots ate away at his flesh. The majority of the people that they tried to rescue died almost immediately due to their injuries or just the overall shock of the situation. And honestly, we could go on for a while more here, but we won't. There's a lot that was reported, and we will get into this a little bit in the future, but this is a part of one of the more gory versions of the story, uh, and again, it was mostly told in the 1940s. A neighbor who was present at the scene, a man named Montreux, quickly told of a spot where he believed more people had been hidden. They found more victims, and it's said that upon discovering them, they unchained a man who was barely alive. The man, upon his rescue, immediately threw himself out the window, likely to end his own suffering. At this point, a crowd had gathered on the property, and whispers are now being heard of the horrors that had been discovered. People from all different walks of life were shocked at the news. Eventually, it's said that the survivors were brought out. Upon witnessing this, the crowd turned into an angry mob. Mad Madame Lalaurie describes this as a morbid parade of carnage. What's even worse is that the survivors were taken to the gates of the local prison where they were made to stand for hours to be gawked at by almost 4,000 people. I hate this so, so much. These are people who were starved, chained, beaten, and worse. They didn't take them for medical care, or at least according to this version of the story. They made them a spectacle. It's disgusting. The human capacity for utter cruelty is something that I will never, ever understand. Upon seeing this, the already angry mob turned into a violent group seeking justice for the atrocities that they had just witnessed. They broke into the home to find the Lalauries and they wanted blood. Once again, this is where the story starts to go a few different ways, but it is most likely that Delphine arranged for her children to be taken out of the house through the back entry, where the crowd had not yet gathered. Delphine escaped with the help of a man most often known as Bastien. Bastien was an enslaved man who she had appeared to be quite close with. He brought her carriage around and they escaped together into the night. Most versions of the story say that the crowd screamed at her while she was getting away. She apparently looked back at their angry faces and simply smiled at them, turned around, and asked Bastian to take her to the docks. He obliged and brought her to a boat. She got in without him. As she got away, she looked back and saw the crowd arriving at the docks. She heard Bastian scream as they caught up to him. Eventually, she arrived at the other side of the lake, where she hired a carriage to take her to a friend's house. As for Dr. Lalaurie, it kind of looks like she just left him there. It doesn't really seem like she made any arrangements for him, unlike her children. Not that that would have really been seen as her responsibility anyway. 
She didn't seem too worried about him either, but he showed up at their friend's house later that evening. She signed her power of attorney over to her daughter's husband, Auguste Delassus. Back at the mansion, the fire had been put out. No other survivors were found despite the fact that firefighters took time to look for other hidden rooms. It is said that shortly after, a scratching sound was heard from somewhere within the walls. It continued for three weeks, getting weaker and weaker until one day it stopped. So was this a survivor that they never found? No one really knows. However, reports of hauntings began almost immediately. We'll get to that a little later, though. Delphine soon realized that she couldn't stay so close to the scene of her horrific actions for long, and shortly after, she booked passage to Paris. Something pretty upsetting about all of this is that she didn't just go on the run or anything. Her crimes just weren't recognized in France, so she is left, and unfortunately, from the sounds of it, she was able to live a full life. They first stayed with friends and family. Many stories exist of her using the whole thing as a way to make fun of the Americans. She would present as a very prim and proper woman and would often joke about how ridiculous it was that they believed she could do anything like that. She seems to have really enjoyed herself around this time and displayed absolutely no guilt. Most of her time was spent enjoying parties. It doesn't really seem like anything changed for her. Dr. Lallerie, on the other hand, appeared to be riddled with guilt. He grew increasingly nervous, and this took a toll on whatever remained of their already fragile relationship. It is said that he started to seek out other companionship, and it looks like he found it because one day he left and never came back. We don't actually know what happened to him or even when he died, but it is likely that he passed away somewhere in Cuba, which was a common stopping point when going to Louisiana, so he could have been possibly headed back to America. One day, an American pastor showed up at the small village Delphine had settled in. Apparently, he recognized her and he questioned her. Soon enough, her new friends began to hear these outrageous claims. Not only did he speak of the abuse, he claimed to have seen it with his own eyes. Somehow, Delphine managed to dodge all of his questions, but her friends were still pretty worried, so they kept pushing. Delphine refused to talk, and she became more and more distant towards anyone and everyone around her. She began to spend the majority of her time with her pet hounds, often taking them on hunting expeditions. This was not a common activity for women, especially for those who lived a higher-class lifestyle. And this brings us to the alleged final days of Delphine Lallery. Sometime during December of 1842, she was on her horse chasing a boar. For those of you who aren't aware, wild boar can be incredibly dangerous towards people, especially when threatened. Multiple people apparently warned her against hunting these animals because of how risky it was. As the story goes, she seemed to be enjoying herself. It was obvious that she loved the thrill of the hunt, but unfortunately, something scared her horse and it threw her off. She landed in the bushes, unharmed. The boar, upon seeing this, turned around and began to head for Delphine. When it got close, it charged at her one last time and began to rip her open as her screams filled the forest. Her body, or whatever was left of it, was sent back to New Orleans, and just like that, 
the city where she inflicted suffering beyond our wildest imaginations becomes her resting place. And that is the story of Delphine Lalaurie. But we're not done here, folks, nope. because like we said in the beginning, we are here to talk about the legend, the truth, and everything in between. Ever since her grisly crimes were discovered, people have been trying to get to the bottom of not only what really happened, but what could have possibly led her down such a dark road. So do we think she was really a monster? Did she act alone? There's a lot of questions that come up when you're discussing this case. One of the main ones is, what actually happened? Of course. So, like we said before, the exact details of this story are shrouded in mystery to this day. Record keeping was in its very, very early stages, and the majority of how this story spread was through gossip and, of course, the press. That being said, there are some things that are widely agreed upon. The first non-eyewitness accounts that can be found were written by a British author named Harriet Martineau. Martineau is now known as one of the first female sociologists. Her writings on race relations, religion, politics, and travel were enjoyed by both men and women at the time. One of her most famous fans was Queen Victoria herself, who during her younger years invited her to her coronation in 1838. Harriet Martineau is actually a really interesting woman. She earned enough through her writing to support herself, which was a huge accomplishment for women at the time. Honestly, that's a huge accomplishment now. Like... True, very true. <laughs> the fact that she was able to do this in the 1800s is just badass. Honestly, she spent between 1838 and 1840 traveling to different parts of the U.S. She wrote about this in her book, Retrospect of Western Travel. Her account of the story is the one that is the most known and the closest to what we're going to call the legend version. The issue with what she wrote is that her sources were mostly secondhand or even thirdhand accounts. It was considered to be the most accurate for a little while, but as you'll see quickly, that has changed through the years. Something that stands out about her version of events is the fact that Dr. Lalaurie is presented as the innocent husband who had no idea of his wife's true nature. In her book, she writes, Her third husband, Monsieur Lalaurie, was, I believe, a Frenchman. He was many years younger than his lady and had nothing to do with the management of her property, so that he has been in no degree mixed up with her affairs and disgraces. This only further pushed the belief that he wasn't involved. The truth is something we can still only speculate on. In her book, Martineau tells the story of a young girl who is chased off of the roof by Delphine Lalaurie. This is the version of events best known. She talks about how she was buried in the courtyard and that an inquiry was opened regarding the abuse. We talked about this earlier. Nothing came of this, and while the enslaved people she had on her property were removed, she used her connections to simply buy them back. Something important to note is that no court documents exist of a death like this on her property or of the inquiry itself. A matter like this would have been seen either in parish or civil court, and some form of documentation would exist. Does this mean it absolutely didn't happen? Not necessarily, but let's keep going. She also writes about Delphine running away from the mob and spending her final years in exile under a false name. While in Paris, Delphine owned properties and paid taxes under her own name. These records exist, and nothing really tells us that she was hiding at all. 
In fact, there's more evidence to show that things didn't really change much for her afterwards in regards to her quality of life. A few decades later, in the late 1890s, Henry Castellanos wrote about her in his book, New Orleans, as it was, Episodes of Louisiana Life. That sounds like a podcast episode title. <laughs> Definitely. It's, it's kind of like a triple barreled, so it's quite It is. Long. There's a lot there. Mm-hmm. It's most likely that he was the first one to actually look at the records and facts rather than what was or what he considered to be hearsay. He did agree with Martineau in regards to how the fire started. He was able to find evidence that one survivor confessed to the mayor that she had set the house on fire in an attempt to end her suffering. He was able to find proof that there was no body in the courtyard where the little girl was reported to have been buried. Does this mean the incident didn't happen? Again, not necessarily, but that part of the story did not appear to be true. Something that he talks about is that there is no evidence that the law enforcement even made an effort to capture Delphine once she left her home. I mean, she was a rich, privileged white lady. Like, mm -hmm. this can mean so many things. For all we know, she could have paid them to look the other way. They had a lot of money, and at this point, she probably still had a lot of valuable items that she could have just given away to them. Like, that's just speculation on my part, but it really wouldn't surprise me. I could see it, especially if she was as beautiful as they claimed, and she, you know, wooed the right police officer kind of thing. 100%, yeah. Years later, famous writer George Washington Cable confirmed through court documents the last names of three neighbors who assisted in finding the victims as Montreuil, Fernandez, and Lefebvre. He was also able to uncover the official statement from Judge Canigo, who was on the scene when the fire happened. The statement confirmed that seven victims were pulled from the upper part of the house during the fire. They were all, without a doubt, in very poor shape. They were examined by doctors, and it was evident that they had been chained up, beaten, and starved. The extent of their injuries showed that this had been happening to them for quite a while. And while this is, without a doubt, absolutely terrible, it is a far cry from what the legends talk about. Police records only go as far back as 1834. State archives have no official records of the incident from that time. As for visual evidence, photography was in its infancy and it's likely that photographs of the fire would not have been taken due to cost. Most newspapers still used illustrations of events. No drawings exist of a crab woman or of any medical experiments that were spoken about. As you can see, there are a lot of different versions of this story. There's no doubt that there was severe abuse in that house. The truly horrific part of this legend wasn't actually talked about until Jean Delavine wrote about it in 1946. As for the medical experiments, the crab woman and stories like that have lived on in history, but as it stands, they likely aren't true. However, it is a fact that during that time, medical tests were done on enslaved people without their consent. Is it possible that Dr. Lalaurie participated in the abuse in this manner to an extent? Again, we don't know for sure, but it would not have been the biggest surprise. After all, he did show an extreme amount of what we could view as guilt afterwards. Or he was nervous about getting caught, in which case many could argue that his behavior could have been that of a guilty person. As for Delphine, we know that she didn't display a ton of guilt. There are letters that exist from her son, Paulin, to Auguste Delassus, who she had signed her power of attorney over to. In these letters, he talks about his mother having 
a desire to return to New Orleans, saying that she was in financial trouble. The financial trouble part raises some eyebrows because the tax records that exist show that she had plenty of money. Paulin also wrote about how he thought it was a bad idea, but that his mother would do whatever she wanted anyway. And it looks like she did. It's been believed for a long time that Delphine Lalaurie stayed in France for the remainder of her life. However, current research shows that she most likely returned to New Orleans in 1842 and that she lived there until she died. Paperwork exists that shows that this was most likely what happened, and a number of documents were found that showed her and her brother owning seven pieces of property valued at around $4 million in today's money. As for where she was buried, that too is a mystery. In fact, the remains of Jean Blanc and the daughters she had with him are also unaccounted for. Her oldest daughter from her first marriage is most likely buried in the Forstel family plot, which is so large that it spans two cemeteries in St. Louis. An extensive survey of both cemeteries with a focus on graves from 1823 to 1850 was done by the Historic Preservation Program. This turned up no evidence of Delphine Lalaurie. A Delphine Lopez was found, and this matched the dates. This led to a theory that this was either her daughter or Delphine herself under a fake name to protect the corpse from desecration. The Delasses plot was another place where she was rumored to be buried along with the McCarty family tombs. The neat thing about tombs that makes things even more complicated is that the bodies are only put into the burial chamber until they decompose. Then they are usually moved and mixed in with other remains to make room for fresh bodies. What this means is that it is likely she is also buried somewhere else in an anonymous crypt. Luckily, unlike Delphine, we have a pretty good picture of what became of the house over the years. It is now considered one of the most haunted buildings in America. I honestly think if any house is going to be haunted, it's going to be somewhere like this. This is bad vibes all around. Even if it's half as bad as the story says it is, that house has a horrific history. Absolutely. It was renovated after the fire and expanded. The overall style of the house was updated by a few decades to give it a more modern look. It's rumored that from 1860 to 1865, it was used as a union headquarters during the Civil War. In 1872, it was reconstructed and became a high school for girls of the lower district, this school stood out at the time because girls of all races were welcome to attend. This did not last long, and after a few years, all of the non-white students were forced to leave. We're already seeing even more negativity pile into this house. I mean, god human beings are shit to one another. Seriously. So, the year later, it was listed as a tobacco business that may or may not have operated as an undercover gambling house. An article appeared in the May 8, 1876 issue of the Daily Picayune about the house saying it was up for auction. It was described as admirably adapted for a large boarding school, asylum, a first-class boarding house, or spacious summer residence. The building is leased for the summer, renting at the rate of $150 a month. A few years later, in 1882, it was turned into a conservatory of music and fashionable dancing school. It did really well at first, and it seemed like for the first time in ages that the building had something happy going on in it. 
Unfortunately, right before a huge recital, a newspaper printed an article saying that the owner had been engaging in improper relationships with his students. As the story goes, he showed up on the night of his big show, ready in his suit and tie. It was supposed to be a sold-out evening. Instead, his business was shunned and he was forced to close the very next day. In 1889, a man named Joseph Edouard Veen moves into the house. Neighbors refer to him as crazy. He refuses to talk to anyone and he keeps to himself. A few years later, he's found dead upstairs. And this is where the strange occurrences really start up. It is said that a black crepe was found hanging on the doors of the house and that no one would admit to doing it. I read this and at first it didn't mean anything to me, so I looked it up. And apparently in the olden days, a piece of black material called crepe was put over the door to indicate a death in the family. This led to the saying, let's not hang the crepe, which basically means let's not be full of gloom or upset about something before it happens, which I kind of like. I kind of like that too. And also in my mind, I still think of like a crepe as like a pancake. Me too. (laughs) So I'm picturing like... A pancake nailed to, like, the doorframe, which is so stupid, but... I love it. I love that that's where your mind went. Automatically, straight to food. In 1893, the Times Democrat reported... F. Greco purchased the haunted house at Hospital and Royal. Yesterday, he posted large flowering placards upon the walls of the building, announcing in both Italian and English, The Haunted House... There is an end to everything, and so there is with ghosts. Come and be convinced. Admission, 10 cents. Apparently, he did this for quite a few years and made some decent money doing it. Throughout 1900 to 1923, the house changed owners five times. It was eventually turned into tenement housing for the growing population of Italian immigrants. Reports of bodies being found during renovations were made, but never confirmed. The building boasted a low cost of living, but people didn't really want to stay there very long. One mother reported that she saw an apparition of a wealthy white woman bending over her sleeping baby. In some versions of this story, the apparition is seen trying to smother her child. In 1923, William Warrington purchased it and turned it into the Warrington House for Wayward Boys. This lasted a little over a decade, and surprisingly during this time, not a ton of activity was reported. In 1945, it became a bar called The Haunted Saloon, where the owner kept a record of paranormal accounts from all the guests. A 1940s haunted saloon-themed bar sounds amazing. I uh, would 10 out of 10 hang out there. Seriously. In 1950, it became a furniture store. The owner began to suspect vandalism when one morning he arrived to see all of his wares covered with a foul, unidentifiable liquid and completely ruined. He cleaned the mess up and he replaced everything in the store only to find it the same way a few mornings later. This happened again and again until one night he decided to stay at the store overnight with a shotgun. Unfortunately, he fell asleep and he woke up to the same mess. He closed the store shortly after and he never returned. The house finds itself at risk of being demolished in 1964 after years of vandalism. The VX Care Commission, a local preservation group, tries actively to stop this from happening. They eventually succeeded. In 1969, an artist named Zeka Funk purchased the house. 
What she, a name. I know, that sounds right? sounds so, like, I don't know. It sounds funky is what it sounds It really like. does. Like, it's super cool. Especially for, like, 1969. I was, like, I'm picturing a really yes. cool lady. Yes, absolutely. She sounds like a real character. Yeah, she does. She claimed there was a ton of paranormal activity happening in the home. She didn't stay for very long, and in the 70s, the house was divided into 20 apartments. It stayed that way until the year 2000. In 1997, one of the most famous paintings of Delphine Lalaurie to exist was commissioned. It was created for a resident of the Lalaurie mansion who had local artist Ricardo Pustiano recreate the most realistic image of her that he could. He spoke with the creators of her famous wax figure along with other historians and came up with the image. The red and black painting was hung in the home and the owner began hosting seances. The painting was apparently seen moving and fell off of the wall multiple times. Then the owner started having more problems. Everywhere she went, she could feel the eyes watching her. On many occasions, she felt a cold hand on her shoulder, and when she would turn around, no one was there. She also reported hearing ghostly whispers. Apparently, she took it to a paranormal investigator as well. However, the painting remains one of the two most famous depictions of Delphine Lalaurie. And uh, we're going to include this painting on like the socials and on YouTube and stuff, and mm-hmm. it is so creepy. It's got a vibe. I looked it up. Yeah. I wouldn't want that in my house. I wouldn't want to be in... I, Like I said, I would go for a visit. If it was still the um, vintage 1940s saloon, I would for sure hang out for a couple of hours, you know, once in a while. But I would not be staying overnight in that house. No, ma'am. No, especially not anywhere near that painting. That thing creeps me out. Like the red and black part of it too like just the colors of it it's it's Mm -hmm. very demonic looking yeah and don't get me wrong like I like some dark art like I I definitely would have a few different um darker themed paintings in my house for sure but that mm, that seems cursed that's got like Ghostbusters vibes all over it you know Mm -hmm. in 2007 actor Nicolas Cage purchased the house which guys weren't expecting that right He lived there for about a year, uh, but it was back on the market in 2008 for $3.5 million after he lost it and two other properties due to tax issues. The foreclosure was purchased for $5.5 million in 2009, and then it was sold again later that year to self-proclaimed voodoo priestess Claudia Williams, who also owns Starling Magical Books and Crafts. She claims the house is no longer haunted. As for now, the house is currently a huge part of local ghost tours. However, if you want to see the inside, you will most likely be disappointed. It doesn't look like the current owners are willing to share their famous home with the public. I would absolutely love to see this house. Even if it was just from the outside, there's so much history here. Even after she died, the property was filled with a ton of different kinds of turmoil. Mm -hmm. So to me, the idea of it being haunted because of all the negativity isn't all that outlandish because if you believe in the paranormal, you can probably agree that something is going to take up residence in a place like that. I think even if you aren't necessarily a believer in the supernatural, just walking through or around the property with the knowledge of all that incredibly heavy history of the home... I feel like it would make your hair stand on end at the very least because 
if a strong emotion can kind of like leave an imprint on a place, the years of suffering and horror at the hands of Delphine LaLaurie alone would certainly leave their mark. But I also feel like when something exists for that long, for hundreds of years or what have you, negative things are going to happen. We're human beings. Yeah. We perpetuate it. So something is going to haunt it eventually. Yeah. On it, like, I mean, if you have a house that's old enough, eventually I feel like something's going to show up. Yeah, someone has to die in it eventually, whether it's peaceful or otherwise. Yep. It's just statistically the case. You're ab- I could not agree with you more. You're absolutely right. So with all of that said, who was Delphine Lallery and what actually happened behind closed doors at 1140 Rue Royale? A lot of people hear the story and wonder if she classifies as a serial killer. We've discussed crimes by women many times at this point, but what makes this different from someone, say, like... Eileen Wernos, for example. Also, what made her story stand out? Abuse of enslaved people was incredibly common, and as much as we hate to say it, there are far worse cases of abuse that happened that were actually confirmed. One example is the widow Giuseppe and the horrors that happened on her plantation. These accounts are verified, so why does Delphine stand out? For starters, her crimes happened within the city, People knew terrible things happened out in the country, but the idea that this was happening among such high-class society was seen as appalling, even for them. As for whether or not she was a serial killer, that's up for debate. A serial killer is defined as a person who kills three or more people over a period of more than 30 days with a cooling-off period in between. Peter Vronsky wrote about this in his 2004 book, Serial Killers, The Method and Madness of Monsters. He talks about mass participatory serial murder and uses examples of abuse towards enslaved people, war crimes, and other atrocities. So with that, what do you think? I don't think she was this sexually sadistic monster like most people say she was, but I do think she was a horrible human being. She was a privileged socialite who probably had an awful temper and took it out on people that she saw as less than her. She abused people, like, without a doubt. Did people die in her care? We don't know, but it wouldn't shock me. Like we said at the beginning, she's a far cry from the American Horror Story portrayal by Kathy Bates, but it doesn't take away from the fact that she participated in the abuse of innocent men, women, and children. And I hadn't seen... American Horror Story Coven before we started working on this episode. I have not seen it either. So I watched it. Oh, did you? Yes, for for research. <laughs> um, it's very, very different. I mean, I, I'm a huge Kathy Bates fan. Oh, So love, like love to her, me, yes. she as Delphine is super fun, but it's not accurate. Like if, if that's what you came here looking for, like I said earlier, you were going to be disappointed, but it's it's a really outlandish portrayal definitely closer to the legend but i it's just my opinion but i think she was just a spoiled privileged mean bitch basically you know she uh was raised to treat certain people a certain way and to be honest she probably didn't even consider the enslaved people in her home as other human beings like the to me the fact that she had them brought back or she bought them back after they were removed from her for abuse tells me that she saw them as nothing but her property and although it's likely not the true story 
I kind of hope there's a truth behind her being mauled to death by a boar because I feel like that would have been a fitting karmic end for a very cruel woman. It really would have. That's the ending that I choose to believe. Yeah, I would like to believe that for all the shit she put other human beings through that a boar ripped her guts out. You know, that's dark, but mm, it is what it is. (laughs) We will agree now that that is the agreed upon grim curriculum version of events. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Because revenge is sweet, I have to say. Yep. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. This was definitely not the deep dive we expected to go on when we started the episode, but this story really uncovered itself in a way we weren't expecting. And we love it when that happens. We sure do. Uh, With that being said, do we have anything to talk about? We are gearing up for a huge series, so next week is going to be a fun and somewhat lighter-hearted topic that we're both very excited for. Yes, that's right, because we are almost, we keep saying it, but we're going to keep reminding you, we're almost at episode 50, the big 5-0. Yeah, I don't know if you guys heard, but we are. (laughs) (laughs) And that means we're getting closer to the one-year anniversary of our first episode, and the reason why we're so excited, I mean, it's obviously exciting, but we're going to be making a huge announcement then, and we're like, we're dying to share it with you. Mm-hmm. So thank you for all of your support so far. We we really do hope you enjoyed this one, as gruesome as it was. If you did enjoy it, please go tell people about it. Share it on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Send it via, I don't know, carrier pigeon to your friends and enemies, because, hey, no publicity is bad publicity. Exactly. It, Numbers. it means a lot. Yeah. A huge shout out to everyone on our Patreon as well. It costs as little as $3 to support it, and it goes a long way to help us continue doing what we do. Special thanks, of course, to our grim VIP tier on Patreon. So big thank you to Brian, Mudkip, Hillary, Pink Flamingo 20, and Lisa. And this was actually an episode suggestion from Lisa. Uh, We've been wanting to cover Delphine for a while, so thank you for the push. And uh, we hope you enjoyed it along with everyone else. Until next week, make sure you don't miss out on the Grim Curriculum news by following us on Instagram at The Grim Curriculum and Grim Curriculum on Twitter. We're also on TikTok and Facebook and all that good stuff, so go look us up. You betcha. We're also available on most podcast platforms. You can also find us on social media and we will link all of that good stuff below along with some other fun links. Thank you so much for listening. This has been The The Grim Grim Curriculum. Curriculum. Did you know that sea cucumbers have teeth in their asses to prevent pearlfish from sneaking in there and eating their balls? (laughs) No, I did not! Now you know! (laughs) Bye!